Hello, welcome to another podcast episode for the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. My name is Kevin Klatt, and we have a special issue for you today because we are talking about a supplemental issue of AJCN in Press, or sorry, of AJCN titled Small Quantity Lipid-Based Nutrient Supplements for Prevention of Malnutrition and Promotion of Healthy Development who benefits the most. And we have a lineup of the authors joining us. I think the most authors we've ever had before this point is two, and we now have seven. So uh, this would be fun. Uh, but Dr. Dewey, if you want to start off with a little intro about yourself, and then we'll go around so folks can know who they're chatting with. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. I'm Kay Dewey, and I'm a Professor Emerita at the University of California, Davis, and the Institute of Global Nutrition. And um, I was uh, leading the uh, individual participant data meta-analysis that we'll be talking about today. Hi, I'm Christine Stewart. I'm a professor of nutrition also at UC Davis and the director of our Institute for Global Nutrition. Uh, I've been involved in um, this IPD meta-analysis as well as um, prior more traditional meta-analysis looking at the effects on mortality as well as being involved in a number of the trials that are included in the um, in this, this set of papers. I'm Elizabeth Prado. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition and Institute for Global Nutrition at UC Davis. And I led the analysis and paper on the developmental outcomes of providing children with SQLNS. Hi, my name is Ryan Wessels, and I'm a researcher in the Institute for Global Nutrition and the Department of Nutrition at the University of California, Davis as well. And I led the IPD analyses on the effects of SQLNS on anemia and micronutrient status outcomes. Hi, I'm Charles Arnold, and I'm the statistician for our institute. I led the analysis on many of the individual trials, the mortality meta-analysis, and these IPD works as well. Hi, my name is Ntutu Zimbuya. Uh, I'm a senior manager uh, with the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. I, uh, I was a co-investigator on one of the trials that contributed data into this analysis, the SHINE trial uh, that was uh, implemented in rural Zimbabwe. Hi, my name is Seth Ebiofewea. I'm an associate professor of nutrition at the University of Ghana in Accra, Ghana. Um, I was one of the researchers involved in the islands trial, uh, and in Ghana, I was responsible for data collection and analysis and write-up of results. Awesome. Well, it's so great to have you all in one spot to talk about this really heroic effort. I think to get us started, just talking for folks, what is a small quantity lipid nutrition supplement? And... Uh, you know, what has been the road to, to looking at LNS in the context of global malnutrition? Well, I know it's a long acronym, SQLNS, but um, it's actually uh, something that's part of a family of different products that all fall under the uh, description of lipid-based nutrient supplements or LNS. And some of your listeners may be familiar with large quantity LNS because some of those um, products like Plumpy Nut have been used very widely around the world for treating severe malnutrition in children. But those are used in very large amounts, more than 500 calories a day. And in the case of small quantity LNS, uh, this is designed for prevention of malnutrition rather than treating it. And so the amounts that are used are very small. It's only about four teaspoons a day for a young child, you know, less than two years of age. And it can be mixed into their regular food. And so it is also considered a type of home fortification of that food to enrich it with the vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids that are often lacking in their diets. So that's the key difference is that it's for prevention and not for treatment. Awesome. And then just for listeners who aren't aware, what is the, the kind of food composition? You mentioned it's similar to plumpy nut, so it's like a peanut paste, but then it's also got some skim milk powder and vegetable oil and things like that. 
Yeah, I mean, all types of LNS are dominated by the lipid or the oil part. Um, so oil of some sort, usually one that's rich in omega-3 fatty acids, is a, a key ingredient. And there's usually some sort of legume. And most commonly, that's peanut paste. But it doesn't have to be. It can be soybeans or other sorts of legumes. Um, and even other recipes have been made that, that are different from that. Um, and there's usually some milk powder in it, but again, it's not mandatory. Uh, most of the trials did include a version that had milk powder. And then the vitamins and minerals, and usually a little bit of sugar for palatability. Great. And so relative to some other, you know, we, we hear a lot about multi-micronutrient supplementation. There's also other ready-to-use therapeutic foods. Uh, what is special about the more lipid-based supplements? Well, one of the reasons that they're lipid-based is that they have um, a very low water content, and that makes them resistant to spoilage. So their shelf life, or how long they can stay without going rancid or going bad, is very long. Um, and this is actually what revolutionized the treatment of severe malnutrition. It used to be that milk formulas were used, but because they were liquid, they had to be used in a clinic or hospital setting. And so children could be emaciated, but they, they couldn't get to a hospital for the amount of time that was required, and they would go without treatment. But when um, the large quantity LNS was first developed, it made it possible to treat those children at home in the community um, because of the long shelf life. And, and that was a huge uh, change in how we could approach that. So that was actually the stimulus for doing research on uh, using small quantity LNS for prevention, seeing how uh, useful the product was for those other um, kinds of efforts. We're at the point of now doing an individual participant data meta-analysis. And so what was kind of the history that, that led us up to that point? I know folks are pretty familiar with meta-analyses as kind of taking all the data and looking at it like in a conglomerate and seeing what the average effect size is. But uh, how did, how did we get to the point of having enough trials to actually do a meta-analysis? Christine, you want to take that one? A meta-analysis, um, traditional meta-analysis, would be um, typically done by extracting the data that you um, can see from the publications. And we might do a meta-analysis once there are um, a number of publications on a similar topic and that we can um, have um, a grounding or an evidence base to be able to draw from. The individual participant data meta-analysis is a step further than that to go beyond just taking the numbers from the publications, but actually um, gathering the data from the research teams that conducted the trials and running the analysis on the individual participants. So we aggregate the data across all of the, the different trials. And I think um, Charles Arnold, our statistician can maybe talk a little bit about the difference in the process for those um, those two approaches, because we've done both approaches now. Sure. So with our uh, IPD, we took a kind of two-stage analysis approach, where the second stage is where you pool the estimates from the different studies, and that's very much a traditional meta-analysis. So the principal benefit that we gain from these sets of analyses is we have control over the first stage or the study-specific estimates. So we're able to look at um, specific effect modification or subsets of children in the same way across trials. It's not usually possible with a traditional meta-analysis where you have to rely on what's available in the publications, which is often um, maybe less or a curated selection of estimates. So we're able to have a consistent approach across trials and answer key questions that individual studies may not have had the power or have thought to have looked at themselves. And if I could just add to that, you know, one of the things that we've observed in global health is that the results of trials are often mixed. You get some trials that seem to work and other trials that don't seem to work. People throw up their hands because when you put it into a meta-analysis, it looks kind of meh. You don't really know if you're getting excited about it or not. And part of the reason for that is that heterogeneity in response is to be expected. People are different in a lot of ways. Some of them respond to an intervention and some of them don't. 
And with an IBD meta-analysis, you can find out what those characteristics are. Who are the ones that benefit? Who are the ones that respond? And you can't do that very well with a traditional meta-analysis because you usually only have study level average data and not the individual data. So that I think is why this is a step beyond the typical meta-analysis. Yeah, this is super frustrating, I think, in all, all realms of nutrition to read these meta-analyses and see that they've individually adjusted for all sorts of different factors and, uh, and differentially done so across studies and don't really have the power to see those maybe subgroups that are benefiting the most. So for, for this set of uh, individual participant data meta-analyses, I was really struck by how rapidly the individual trials were kind of done and generated. So does anybody want to speak to kind of the history of that and some of the investment of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually making this possible? It's, a, it's really, I think, a great example maybe for listeners of a way to, to do really good rigorous trials and get to the point of having a meaningful evidence base in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, I'll start and then I would like others to jump in. But um, there were a couple of trials um, more than 10 years ago that, that hinted that there were some beneficial effects for prevention, but the evidence was still pretty thin. So one of the, the things that the Gates Foundation invested in was a relatively large project. We call it the ISLANDS Project, International Lipid-Based Nutrient Supplements Project that um, involved four different trials in three countries in Africa. And they had different objectives. I won't go into all of those, but that sort of jump-started things. And part of the work included trying to raise awareness among other researchers and, and spearhead uh, a network of researchers that were interested in this intervention. So a number of other trials got started soon around that time or after that um, have have come together um, really quickly, as you said, in the last 10 years or so. And um, so Seth, he mentioned he was part of the Islands Project in Ghana, but I'd like to ask Ndu to talk a little bit about um, the investment that led to the SHINE trial in Zimbabwe. Thanks, Kay. Uh, so the um, SHINE trial in Zimbabwe was also the result of um, uh, an investment by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, along with other uh, funders. Uh, we our point of departure was slightly different. We were um, uh, testing the independent effects of wash, water sanitation and hygiene, and nutrition on child growth and anemia, with the underlying hypothesis that um, this effect would be mediated by a condition of the gut. Of the gut. Um, so, in looking at uh, our uh, nutrition intervention. Uh, one, we conducted a lot of formative research initially, and one of the constraints that we observed was how difficult it was to achieve a, a nutritionally adequate diet um, using behavior change communication alone. And that's where um, the awareness raising that uh, Kay alluded to uh, came in handy in the sense that we saw um, SQLNS as a way of plugging the gaps that, um, that, that remained in the diets of young children. So that became one of the uh, a critical component of our um, complementary feeding, or the complementary feeding arm of our trial. So that is um, where our involvement came in. And uh, through this, uh, the SHINE trial, where we tested the effects of complementary feeding and wash, we generated data on um, on on uh, over four thousand uh, children, and that's the data set that um, that we contributed to um, to this analysis. Thank you, Christine. Do you want to quickly mention the wash benefits trials? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, so the the wash benefits trials were a pair of sister trials, also. Um, in the family with the SHINE trial that Ndu mentioned, um, arising from a similar set of research questions around the independent and combined effects of water sanitation and hygiene, as well as nutrition on child growth and development. And I would say, you know, to, to sort of go back to your original question, Kevin, about how did um, some of this arise? How did the investment and funding from the Gates Foundation arise to support all of these trials? And I think that it, it also stems from um, kind of a, 
a frustration that we've had in the international nutrition community for many years um, about how intractable child growth faltering has been. Um, we have new interventions that are effective at addressing micronutrient deficiencies, providing specific micronutrient supplements to um, address the deficiency that a child might have, or through interventions like food fortification to address nutrient gaps. But child growth faltering has been a much bigger challenge to address. And I think that some of the early work with the small quantity lipid-based nutrient supplements that Kay mentioned provided some hint that this may be an intervention that could help to address that problem. Um, and similarly, the, the work on WASH and nutrition was also aimed at that, at that real um, that important question about how can we improve children's growth in these environments where um, food insecurity and malnutrition is common, but also um, children are growing up in unclean environments where they're exposed to a high risk of infection and pathogen burden. So it's really trying to address that kind of intractable problem of child growth faltering that we see in many places around the world. Great. And so that's that's a good intro to some of the trials that were included in the IDP. And I think there are about 14 in total, if I remember correctly. Um, and so just could you kind of give me a run through of some of the basic designs of the trial and what the inclusion exclusion criteria were and uh, what uh, we can get into the analysis after that? Um, Ryan, would you like to give a bit of an overview on uh, the trials and, and how they differed and how they were similar? Sure. Um, as was previously mentioned, we had 14 trials included in the IPD, and this, in total, they included a, over 37,000 children. And so when we were deciding on exclusion and, and inclusion criteria for our IPD analyses, we decided to um, include trials which were either longitudinal, so all randomized controlled trials, which were either longitudinal prospective or which had done multiple cross-sectional surveys um, at different time points. And we included trials um, which had children between 6 and 23 months of age, and children had to be in the trial for at least three months in that age bracket so that they would have had access to the supplement for at least three months of time, um, thinking that that was a minimum period of time to have to see an effect on growth or other outcomes. And so we included trials which offered small quantity LNS um, for at least the portion of the six to 24 age month range, which was between six and 12 months. One trial did offer a slightly larger supplement after that, but we wanted at least in the six to 12 month range to have a small quantity LNS. And the comparison groups were either, there were some which had an active comparison group. So they might've gone to the houses at the same frequency um, and maybe offered behavior change communication education or had the same um, monitoring in terms of growth or MUAC, but didn't provide the lipid-based nutrient supplement. And some trials had more of a passive control arm where they saw the children in the passive control arm at the beginning of the intervention and then again at the end, but there was no um, contact with those groups throughout the intervention. And so approximately half of the trials that were included in the IPD were community-based and the other half were research-based. And so for the research-based trials, these were trials that were set up where all the interventions were provided by the research team as well as the evaluations. Um, and the other half of the trials were community-based trials where there was already an organization working in the community providing um, having with community health workers providing access to community-based care. And so these, these were more programmatic implementation trials where those providers provided the supplements, provided the program implementation, and then the researchers conducted the outcome assessment. And so we kind of had the whole range of efficacy to effectiveness trials um, included in this IPD. And then with that, there were a good number of outcomes that you looked at that were the subject of these the different IPD meta-analysis papers. And so we've got growth and development, anemia, micronutrient status. And I think, you know, we could go in and, and talk about every single outcome, but I think I want folks to read the papers to really get the meat of it. But I think some, some high-level findings would be particularly interesting to talk about. And 
I think maybe couching this all in the context of the 2019 meta-analysis too about mortality would be kind of interesting background information if anybody wants to chat about that and just to highlight these things are, are reducing the, the main outcome we care about in the form of, of child death, but then also potentially some of these other quality of life and, and nutritional biomarkers. Um, well, I can start and talk about uh, a little of that and then and hand it over to the others. Um, just real quickly, in the mortality meta-analysis, there was an overall 27% reduction in all-cause mortality between 6 and 24 months, um, which was a surprise to us. And, and we'd seen hints of it in some of the individual trials, but when we had the power to look at it with all of the data combined, um, that's what we found. Um, for growth, as Christine mentioned, uh, trying to uh, prevent child stunting is one of the most difficult objectives um, that we've encountered in our research. And overall, in this uh, meta-analysis, we found a 12% reduction in stunting. That's important because stunting is so common. About more than one in five children in the world in lower and middle-income countries was stunted in 2019. So this is a very common problem affecting more than 140 million children. And so even a 12% reduction, while it seems small, it's actually quite important. And there were similar reductions in wasting and um, acute malnutrition or, or low mid arm, arm circumference. And there was also an impact on head circumference or small head circumference. Um, and that's important because head circumference is a, is a a marker in some extent to some extent at this age of brain growth, and and that's really important because that's what's then driving brain development. So this is where I hand the baton off to Beth so she can talk about the developmental outcomes. This was a very exciting opportunity to look at developmental outcomes because, as Charles mentioned earlier, some of the Limitations of traditional meta-analysis methods have really hampered the ability, our ability to look at pooled estimates of effective nutrition interventions on development. So you can imagine if you're looking across countries, different trials, different places, the way that you measure motor development, language development, cognitive development is, can be really different in, in different places, different trials, different tools are used. Even if it's the same tool, it's adapted to the context. So having the individual participant data really allowed us to harmonize the way we calculated the developmental outcomes across trials and um, be able to calculate pooled effects in these 30,000 children of this specific nutrition strategy. If you look at base nutrient supplements, which you know very few other nutrition strategies have actually been able to um, report pooled meta-analysis effects. So uh, what we found was about a difference uh, analogous to about one IQ point between the LNS and, and control groups. Um, and we also found 16 to 19% reductions in, the, in children who were at most risk of developmental delay. So 16 to 19% reduction in adverse developmental outcomes. So that could be important because development builds on itself. So developmental skills build on each other. You have to walk before you can run. You have to say words before you can say sentences. Um, so moving children out of that at-risk category or even you know, small advances in development could have important effects on children's developmental trajectories. And that's an area that's still under, um, under investigation. So what are the longer-term effects of LNS on child development. A few trials have looked at that and found some indications of positive effects. And, and other trials are currently doing follow-up studies to see if those short-term effects um, are maintained in the longer term. And so I think we time we think about cognition and development and, and brain development, you know, a topic of anemia always comes to mind. And I know you guys looked at that as well and other micronutrient status that might be potential impactors there. So what did you see for anemia and micronutrient status? Yeah, so we also saw significant positive effects of SQLNS on anemia and micronutrient status, particularly the iron biomarkers. Um, and so we observed a 16% reduction in the prevalence of anemia com when children received SQLNS compared to the control. And given that, you know, across South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, 
you know, more than half of the children under five years old may be anemic, the 16% reduction could be substantial. Um, and then very importantly, we observed that um, providing SQLNS reduced the prevalence of iron deficiency by 56%. So this corresponds to uh, a 22% percentage point reduction in the prevalence of iron deficiency. And also SQLNS reduced the prevalence of iron deficiency anemia by 64%. And so this can have important implications um, because micronutrient deficiencies and anemia are associated with increased morbidity and mortality and impaired development um, across children in these regions. So since we did, we kind of just talked about the, the global effects, but now that we did, you did the IDP, were there any specific subgroups for any of these outcomes that really popped out as being most likely to benefit? Well, I'll start with growth. Um, and then again, hand it off to the others. Uh, at the study level, we actually didn't find big differences in the effect of the intervention um, by study level characteristics. So in other words, it seemed to be uh, effective across sites, regardless of um, things like the burden of stunting or malaria or water quality or sanitation. Um, at the individual level, uh, we did find a greater effect of the intervention on girls than on boys. We think this is because the girls may be more able to respond than the boys. They actually, girls did a little better in terms of growth status overall than boys. So they weren't worse off. So they weren't more likely to benefit, but they were more likely to respond. We don't totally understand why. Other than that, um, there weren't too many uh what we call effect modifiers. We found bigger effects in children who were later born. So they weren't the first born child, they were later born. Um, and uh, effects in terms of mother's education or depression. Uh, but overall, it wasn't a very, uh, very dramatic sorts of effect modification. But for development, um, we did see some, and also for anemia, we did see some very interesting effect modifications. So, uh, again, I'll hand it over to Beth and then Ryan. So for development, we found larger effects of SQLNS in children in higher risk environments. So communities that had a higher prevalence of stenting or anemia showed greater effects of LNS at the study level. And at the individual level, it was children from poorer households, children of mothers with lower education, stunted children, and children who had moderate acute malnutrition at baseline. Those were the groups that um, showed larger effects of SQLNS. Um, so we think that they have a greater potential to benefit. So children in higher risk environments, they might be behind their peers in developmental skills and have more room for improvement and more potential to benefit from SQLNS. And the, the group that really showed the biggest effects was the uh, moderate acute malnourished children. So they, um, you know, most of these, again, because SQLNS is designed for prevention, these trials didn't actually enroll children if they were severely malnourished. Those children were referred for treatment. Uh, but some of the trials did include children who were moderate, moderately malnourished. And in that group, there were gains of about five IQ points when children were given SQLNS. So that really shows that this can be very beneficial for these most vulnerable children. And you know, many trials have shown that treating malnutrition improves, again, survival and uh, recovery. But this is a really new and exciting finding that it actually actually has these large effects on development as well. And in terms of anemia and micronutrient status outcomes, we did see some study level effect modifiers. Oftentimes, these were related to um, study design characteristics. So, for example, um, we saw a greater effect of SQLNS on anemia and or iron status when there was higher adherence to the SQLNS supplement. So children reported consuming it more frequently or um, consuming a larger portion of the supplement when a higher iron dose was provided in the supplement and or when the supplement was provided for a longer duration. One thing I did want to point out about these study level 
effect modifiers and study level characteristics is that the intervention was effective across all subgroups. So even though it may have been, we saw a greater reduction among the, the studies which provided a high iron dose, even the studies which provided a slightly lower iron dose, the study was still um, effective and um, was still significant. And so I think this really points to the robustness of this intervention across a variety of contexts um, in terms of population characteristics and study design. At the individual level, um, children with greater nutritional deficits seem to have a greater potential to benefit from the supplementation. Um, we observe greater increases in hemoglobin among children who are anemic at baseline and greater increases in ferritin concentrations or iron status among children who were acutely malnourished at baseline. We also observed greater effects among later born children who, as Kate mentioned earlier, may be competing more for caregiving and family resources. And so there we observed greater reductions in the prevalence of anemia and greater increases in hemoglobin and ferritin concentrations compared to first born children. So I, I also, from a nutritional biology perspective, I know, um, you know there's been a lot of interest in this space, but particularly for iron related to infection and inflammation. And were there, was there anything there that's worth highlighting from the IDPs related to inflammatory status? Yeah. So first, I'd like to mention that at the study level, many of the studies were designed with this awareness in mind. Um, and so many of the studies which were conducted in malaria endemic areas um, provided a lower dose of iron. And so they provided approximately six milligrams of iron per day. Um, and this was often split between dosing was split so that children would receive two, three milligram portions per day. And so in some ways, it is hard to tease apart the study level characteristics where we did see a greater effect of SQLNS when a higher iron dose was provided or um, but these were also the studies which tended to have a lower burden of inflammation, studies which tended to have a lower burden of malaria, and tended to have um, improved sanitation and water quality. So just keeping in, in, in mind that it's hard to tease apart some of these study level characteristics. We also did observe, though, at the individual level, that children without inflammation at the time of the outcome assessment may have a greater potential to respond to the intervention. And so among these children, we saw greater reductions in the prevalence of anemia. Um, these children may have had a higher proportion of anemia that was amenable to nutrient supplementation versus you know, anemia that could be caused by um, malaria, for example. And we also saw greater increases in ferritin concentrations among children without inflammation. So for example, they may have been better able to absorb the iron that was provided to them. Um, but again, I think it's important to point out that across analyses, there was a consistent positive effect of LNS across all subgroups. So even children who had inflammation at the time of outcome assessment, there were still positive effects on anemia and micronutrient status. That's wonderful to hear. Uh, and good that I think trials are kind of targeting things based off of endemic malaria status and whatnot. So I guess... Uh, well, there's one more kind of subgroup about that was interesting as to whether the study was conducted within an existing program and whether results differed by that. Does anybody want to tackle that? Um, sure, I can. And then maybe the others can jump in. But um, we did look at that and we found that the, the effect of the intervention was pretty similar uh, in uh, studies that were done within a community-based program as compared to studies that were completely conducted by the research team. So that did not seem to matter that much. And uh, similarly, we found that studies that um, provided a higher level of nutrition counseling around um, infant and young child feeding, uh, the, that the effects didn't really depend on that either. Um, so those study level or program level uh, characteristics didn't seem to matter too much kind of great to hear. And, uh, you know, the burden of translation for some of these interventions in nutrition is always can be a big barrier to actually sort of implementing them more widespread. And so the fact that it was readily uptaken and didn't seem to require being nested within a, a large community intervention with, you know, uh, local health workers that everyone knows about is always a good sign for global, global nutrition. 
But if I could just add one thing, I mean, we do want to make sure that people know that this is not a standalone intervention, just the supplements themselves, that they always need to be accompanied by really good messaging and education around infant and young child feeding. That's kind of the bare minimum um, what needs to go with it out there in the community. It would be really interesting, I think, for listeners to hear about how does you know, the lipid nutrition supplement compared to, well, first, what are other interventions that folks are kind of targeting towards this age group and what are their impacts and how does the lipid nutrition supplement compare from the results of this IDP meta-analysis? Um, again, I'll, I can start in terms of um, some of those types of other uh, interventions, but I'd like others to comment as well. When it comes to things like education and counseling on infant and young child feeding, the evidence from meta-analyses, at least, is that those are you know, not particularly strong impacts, and uh, we are seeing a more consistent um, effect from these interventions um, than we see for those out there. And the, what's more important, though, is that you can get some improvements uh, for certain outcomes with educational in- interventions, but generally they, they don't uh, tend to have an impact on all of the types of outcomes that we looked at simultaneously. So uh, growth, development, anemia, micronutrient status, and mortality. And there were some trials also that directly compared uh, providing SQLNS along with education to a group that got the enhanced education by itself. And of those three trials, two of them found an advantage uh, in terms of several outcomes for the group that also received the small quantity LNS. So on top of the education, there was an additional advantage of receiving the supplements. So um, actually, I wonder, Ryan, if you'd like to talk about micronutrient powders um, in terms of what we know of their effects and how they compare. So another intervention that's often targeted at this age group is multiple micronutrient powders, which is another home fortification method. Similar to small quantity LNS in that they provide sort of the full range of vitamin and minerals, but SQLNS also provides um, calories and omega-3 fatty acids. And so one thing is that with the multiple micronutrient powders and the LNS, we see very similar effects on anemia and iron status outcomes. And so both the LNS and the multiple micronutrient powders saw between a 16 and 18% reduction in the prevalence of anemia and approximately a 50% reduction in the prevalence of iron deficiency. So very similar um, for the those outcomes. But I think what we see with the SQLNS is the added benefit of um, the reduction in stunting and wasting that has not been observed with the multiple micronutrient powders, as well as the developmental outcomes and the mortality, um, the reduction in mortality that has been observed with SQLNS. For development, another intervention that's very effective is parenting interventions to promote caregiving, nurturing care, uh, learning opportunities in the home environment. So those types of interventions have much larger effects than nutrition interventions on developmental outcomes in more in the range of five IQ points, typically. One thing to think about is integrating SQLNS with these types of parenting interventions. There are a number of advantages that could be that could come from that integration. One is that it could incentivize parents to come to the home visits or the caregiving groups or whatever the program is doing to promote nurturing care. Um, If they're given SQLNS, they might be more likely to actually participate um, more regularly. And another is it could reduce costs, right? If you're taking advantage of the existing contacts between community workers and families and you're doing multiple um, activities at the same contact, that could be cost effective. But what we really need is more evidence for cost effectiveness of these different options, nurturing care interventions, nutrition, SQLNS provision um, combinations. We we really need more work to know know, what's going to be most cost effective. I wonder if if Seth and Amdu would like to comment also on um, some of these issues of co-packaging interventions, for example, adding SQLNS to other things that are being done out in the community um, where they worked. 
so maybe it would be uh, helpful to uh, step back and uh, talk about um, experiences in implementing these trials in the field and integrating them into a community health worker system. Uh, in the SHINE trial, uh, SQLNS was delivered um, as part of um, uh, a package uh, of um, education uh, with, uh, in, in terms of exclusive breastfeeding and complementary feeding counseling. And in uh, one of the arms, as well as um, an integrated WASH intervention. Our um, uh, study uh, was one of the community-based uh, trials embedded in, uh, a community, in, a, in the community health system. Some elements in terms of co-packaging, which, which I think is the vision of what we would want to uh, deliver SQLNS as um, in, in, in the future, uh, was um, uh, in acceptability. I think uh, acceptability was important in two ways, both um, the extent to which mother-child diets accepted SQLNS and also uh, the um, uh, community health workers' delivery of SQLNS was acceptable to the community, but also there was community-wide acceptance of the um, of of the intervention. So that was the core packaging that we uh, that we uh, in, in, in incorporated. But because uh, these were delivered in a community health worker system uh, and not a parallel study system. Uh, one of the elements that was crucial for us to uh, consider and integrate was the burden, the existing burden uh, that uh, community health workers were faced with in terms of their time constraints and the other things that they needed to do for the Ministry of Health and also for their own families. Making sure that um, there were logistical systems that um, uh, that underpinned the program was important and then um, timing the delivery of the SQLNS to the uh, community health workers and also agreement on how much contact there was between um, the community health worker and the households at the community level was um, was important. So those were some of the elements um, that, uh, that, that were involved in packaging the intervention, but that we might think about in terms of how to translate uh, some of these positive findings into either that uh, kind of delivery system or another delivery uh, system altogether. So those were um, uh, some of our experiences um, in, in terms of packaging the interventions in, in the context of rural Zimbabwe. I don't know, Seth, if you have anything to add from your, the Ghanaian experience. No, ours was um, uh, an efficacy trial where field workers went to the homes directly to deliver the supplements. Uh, women were enrolled from the local hospitals and antenatal clinics. And once they were enrolled, um, we had field workers who visited them and delivered the supplements. So it was more controlled. And, you know, we made sure that every woman was reached whenever she needed to be reached. That might be different from what you might see if it was part of a, a government program or you know, that kind of thing. Great. So I think that kind of takes us to what is next for SQLNS and both from, I guess, the development side, the research side, and the, the implementation side. Well, there's a lot ahead. And um, but one of the things that we were excited to see this year is that um, there's, a, there's a series of papers that have been published in The Lancet in 2008, 2013, and then just this year, 2021, that covers all of the interventions that might be effective for maternal and child uh, nutrition, undernutrition in particular. And this year, they added small quantity LNS to the list of the interventions, 11 of them now, that they would recommend. So that's, I think, beginning to build some awareness of this, but more of that kind of um, understanding is needed. And as the others have, have touched upon, there are uh, different types of platforms or delivery systems for implementation. So the next steps would include engaging with governments, engaging with funders and with non-governmental organizations to, first of all, figure out how to fund um, these types of interventions and keep them sustainable. Talk about 
the local production of SQLNS, which is uh, already occurring in a number of countries, to make sure that this type of intervention is uh, appropriately nested within an existing program with all the elements that, that one would want for improving child diets and um, other aspects of, of health. So I think it's an appropriate year to be thinking about this. We've just had the Food Systems Summit uh, in late September um, that talked about all kinds of aspects of food and nutrition globally and required commitments from a number of different countries around the world. And coming up in December is a big meeting called Nutrition for Growth in Japan that also is at a very high level requiring commitments from donors and from governments. We're excited about the opportunity that this presents, but we know that there's a lot more work to be done. Any other parting thoughts from folks or excitements for the future? I think that there's, there's, there's already interest from a few countries in, um, in the, the potential to scale up the um, distribution and availability of small quantity lipid-based nutrient supplements. It makes it more apparent that we need also um, implementation research um, and good case studies of not just does this work, but how to, to um, enable community programs or government programs to be able to take this up effectively. So um, beyond the, the research, we need to think about the logistics and the delivery and the messaging and, and all of those other things. And so that's, a, I think, a ripe area for um, implementation research in the future. And then I would like to make a maybe a plug or ask Beth if she could say a couple words about some of the research that she's doing on um, on long-term effects on child development, which I think is also another exciting area to, that will be coming in the future. Yeah, well, Seth could also talk about this. We're doing this project together. Um, so we are currently following up the Islands Dyad cohort in Ghana. So these, um, this was about 1,300 pregnant women were enrolled and the small quantity LNS was given not only to the children, but also to the, to the mothers, the pregnant postpartum women. So the SQLNS intervention really covered most of the first thousand days from first half of pregnancy through 18 months uh, postpartum. And we are currently re-enrolling the children at 10 years of age. And we're measuring not only behavioral and cognitive development, but also autonomic nervous system physiology and um, structural brain imaging. So we're going to be able to see, you know, are there during this really foundational rapid period of brain development in, in early life, are there long-term effects uh, of provision of, of SQLNS on, on children's brain, brain structure? So it's a, it's a very exciting study. I think a few other of the trials that were included in this LNS IPD analysis are also currently conducting follow-up studies. So it's definitely something to watch for, what, what, for when these papers start coming out. Just to also add that um, in the initial part of SQLNS um, research, much of the attention was on growth of children, infants' growth at the time of birth and growth in the months after birth. But then we know that growth is not that sensitive to some of these interventions. So. Um, in the years that followed, we are um, learning that there may be other ways that we can, you know, evaluate the impact of the intervention other than growth. And so we are also focusing attention on uh, development, which is what Beth spoke about. And there are many areas of development um, that we are now interested in. And to try to make sure that we didn't miss any of the impact of LNS on children growth and development. And I'd, I'd like to add that um, what's really exciting about this whole body of research is that it spans the range from basic science to understand why are these effects occurring all the way out to the implementation science research that Christine was mentioning. 
And um, I, I really want to put in a, a plea for greater collaboration across that spectrum. So sometimes we observe something in the field, we see something that changes. We don't know why exactly that happened, but we can collaborate with our colleagues who are doing work that's at the bench or with animal models, and they can explore some of what the, the real deep mechanisms are and the underlying biology. And I think that's really important to uh, corroborate what we might be seeing in these field trials where we don't have quite as much control over what's going on. But also on the implementation science side, um, there's a lot of really interesting and elegant study design options and rigorous methods for doing that work. And um, people may not be aware of how much this is evolving, but there is a whole society now, the Society for Implementation Science in Nutrition, SISN. And I encourage your listeners to, to look at that because there is a huge amount of work being uh, done and, and needed um, to further that area in, in the real world. I'd like to just add one more thing um, before we, we wrap up completely. And that is to say that um, the people here in, on this podcast are just a small fraction of all of the co-authors involved in these papers. I think we had almost 80 individuals um, involved, at least 45 co-authors on each paper in all of the different countries where these trials were conducted. And uh, it was really a joy to work with them on putting together these papers. And uh, so I want to thank them all and also um, certainly acknowledge all of the, that they contributed. Yeah, it was. It looks like quite the Herculean effort, and I'm I'm glad we could get as many authors as we did on. And I I also really enjoyed your plug about uh, getting basic scientists all the way up through implementation scientists to collaborate. I was looking at the the composition of this uh, of the lipid nutrition supplements and thinking about development. I'm like, oh, there's no choline. We could do a lot there. <laughs> um, anyway. So that was a really wonderful overview of this uh, lipid nutrition supplement. And uh, I think that folks will really enjoy reading in this whole uh, IDP meta-analysis and all the outcomes. And there's a lot of little gems in there that we've touched the service on a lot of them. But for, for my methods geeks out there and also my global health people, uh, this is one not to miss for sure. And we'll have a link in the show notes, uh, as always, to, to all the papers. And uh Hope to have you all back on soon with some more follow-up analyses and, and other uh, exploratory findings.